want to introduce our guest preacher for today, Caitlin Shess. Um, she is a just finishing one year down uh, of studying in um, theology and politics at Duke Divinity School. Um, some of you if, if, may have interacted with her or some of her work through social media or through uh, a podcast that she is on with the guy that created VeggieTales. Um, <laughs> uh, also, she wrote a fantastic book uh, with InterVarsity Press called The Liturgy of Politics that I would recommend really highly. And so we're so glad to have here um, and, and so thankful for the ways that God has gifted this Durham Christian community with um, talent and resources and um, collaboration and creativity. And, and so we're, we're always um, benefiting from um, the, the, the gifts that God gives us. Um, and, and so Caitlin's presence with us today represents some of that. So I'll invite uh, Nancy to read our lectionary text from Acts 9. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is really great to be with all of you. I realized as I was sitting there that this is one of the first times in my life that I'm at a church where no one here knows my mom, <laughs> um, because I, I didn't quite grow up a pastor's kid, but I grew up with a mom who was in ministry my whole life. So I grew up um, being called Debbie's daughter just as often as I was called Caitlin. Um, my mom was amazing. This gives me a great opportunity. She'll watch this, or you can email her and tell her all the things I'm about to tell you. Um, she was seriously just the, the most wonderful mother to me, but more than that, she was just a faithful disciple of Christ, and she um, taught in churches my whole life. She did so many different jobs. My dad uh, is in the military, so we moved every couple years, but anywhere that we lived, my mom would find some way to serve in the church. And when I was in college trying to figure out what I was going to do next, I had decided I was going to go to seminary, so I thought I should do an internship at a church. And the church that I did this internship at, she had just left a year of inaugurating a new staff position at this church. She was beloved by this church. It was a church that we had grown up going to, so basically every time we moved back to this area, we would end up at this church. So between the many times that we were there, my mom did children's ministry, she did women's ministry, she brought meals to new moms or to people who were sick, she, you know, just financially supported people, she led women's retreats. If this had been a church where women could preach, she would have preached. I mean, she was just very involved and so faithful. 
And I got very used to everywhere I went at home or at school or at church being Debbie's daughter. And I think many of us, whatever our families look like, whatever they are, we've probably felt that weight of being someone's sibling or daughter or son or nephew or niece or grandson or granddaughter. And sometimes it's about expectations that weight. Maybe your older sibling got straight A's and so you felt like you had to, you know, make up for that with all of their teachers, or maybe they were a troublemaker and you had to deal with the expectation that you would be really difficult. Uh, For me, when I started this internship at this church, I came in with this mom who had done so many things, was so beloved, and I was just there for the summer to like make sure teenagers didn't kill each other. And I remember the first event that we did, we were giving lunch or dinner or something to these new volunteers we were training for summer camp. So they were coming in to learn how to handle high schoolers for summer camp. I was helping set up the food, and I remember one of the women in the group uh, saw this big tray of desserts, and she gave me a plate to put them on, and she said, oh, you will do such a good job making these look really pretty. You're Debbie's daughter. My mom is really good at that kind of stuff. She's amazing. And the short version of the story of the rest of that summer is that I did not meet the expectations of being Debbie's daughter. (laughs) I was good at some things, and I was not good at the things that my mom was good at. Most of us probably don't fit those expectations from our families. Um, Maybe it's our parents' expectations. Maybe it's the limitations of our neighborhood or our community. Maybe we're struggling, like I said, to live up to our siblings or our extended family. We're wondering where we fit. As our families change, as we change, as the world changes, maybe we all used to basically agree on everything and now we have political or theological differences that make our relationship really difficult. Maybe we used to all live in the same area, and now we're really far apart. Maybe we all used to kind of have the same life experience, and now some have kids, and some their career is really important, and it just feels like we don't know where we fit in our families anymore. The story from this passage in Acts today describes a woman who very likely did not fit. And we're going to see in this story of Tabitha something true about all of us. The way God sees us, treats us, and the calling that we share with Tabitha to serve the people of God for the glory of God. So first, who was Tabitha, or Dorcas? I prefer to use her Aramaic name for reasons we'll get to in a minute, but I was told this week that I have to use Dorcas at least a few times because it's funny. Um, So who was Tabitha or Dorcas? Uh, Some people think Tabitha was a widow. She was living among and caring for widows, as we learned in that passage. Her husband or children are not named. Um, She was serving the church to such a great degree that people think she must have been a widow to have that kind of focus. Some scholars think she was actually an unmarried younger woman, old enough as an adult, but but unmarried. Um, It's more often or more common than we think today, more possible for different reasons for a woman to have family money and maybe support herself, be a patroness for other people. But both of these descriptions of Tabitha are answering questions that the text doesn't invite us to ask. Both of these descriptions struggle to fit her into a patriarchal family structure of her time, to figure out the answer to a question that was very relevant at the time that early readers definitely would have asked, who do you belong to? Where do you fit? What role do you play? And Luke apparently thinks something strange and foreign to people of that time and very often to people of our time as well, that her marital status does not matter, that her family position does not matter, that her social status does not matter. Where she fits into a biological or nuclear family does not matter. Where she fits into the kingdom of God matters immensely. This is the first thing that we share with Tabitha. God places us in a new family. Family is so important in the Bible, but maybe not in the ways that we often think. 
Christians in the U.S. in recent years have gotten a reputation for being family people. We have family-friendly radio stations. We have institutions that prop up around the family. Politically, we're known for thinking that the family is the most important social unit. And when we think of family, even as Christians in the U.S., we tend to think of it pretty narrowly defined, right? Nuclear family, mom, dad, two and a half kids, picket fence. But family in the Bible works pretty differently. The Old Testament has a high emphasis on family, on marriage, on procreation. That's why there's so many stories about who is pregnant and by who and the lineage of all of the families. And yet even in the Old Testament, we see God's plan to explode our concepts of family. Abraham is given a commission to create a people that would be a blessing to the nations and not just to himself. People join the people of God from the outside, like Rahab, or one of my favorites, Ruth, who says to her mother-in-law of a different ethnicity than her, your people will be my people. But then the New Testament comes and explodes our idea of family even more. When Jesus' mother and brothers come to visit him in Matthew 12 and stand outside the room asking for him, he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. When a woman praises Jesus in Luke 11, blessed is the woman who birthed and nursed you, a very stereotypical blessing for a woman at that time, he says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of the Lord and obey. Family is no longer about where you fit, biologically, socially, nationally, ethnically. It's about belonging to a new family, the family of God. And this is beautifully expressed in this description of Tabitha. Instead of getting background on her family, we get this description of her. She is a disciple. This is, interestingly, the only time in the New Testament that the feminine form of the Greek word, mathetria, for disciple, is used. Now, the plural masculine form of the word, disciples, meaning either a group of men or a group of men and women, is used a lot, many times in contexts where we know the group includes women. So Tabitha is not the only woman disciple by far. I think we all probably are aware of that, especially seeing as Easter was just a few weeks ago. Some pretty important women disciples. But I don't think this special use of the feminine word is inconsequential. Tabitha, as a woman, would be defined in her social setting most often by her family, whose daughter she was, who she was married to, what sons she had and what they did. But here she is defined as a woman by her real title, her real source of status and significance, her real family, the family of God. Then Luke tells us something about a member of the family of God and what they look like. She was full of good works and acts of charity. These two phrases pack a big punch. They're general terms. Acts of charity sometimes refers specifically to almsgiving, to giving financially to the poor. But both of them kind of generally describe her orientation to her community. And even that second phrase that we translate acts of charity, the Greek word there is most often used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to translate justice or righteousness from the Hebrew. The point is this, Tabitha was known in her community for serving the people she loved, for seeking just right relationships with them. This is how she is introduced to us. She is a disciple, and that means that she serves. Later in the narrative, we get a striking detail about her death that tells us much about her life. The widows that she lived with and served with bring Peter the tunics or the garments or the clothes that she made them. They bring Peter these tangible, material things. Why? They aren't necessarily expecting him to heal her. We don't have anything in the text that makes us think that they're like bartering with him or proving her worth. They're mourning, they're grieving. And they bring Peter these articles of clothing to say, this is the woman we are grieving. She loved us, we loved her. Look at this proof of it. Clothing is also significant in the Bible, like family. 
It's one of the earliest forms of God's grace in response to our sin. Adam and Eve use uncomfortable fig leaves to cover themselves, but God gives them clothes. The language of being clothed in righteousness or vindication is all over the place in scripture. From Isaiah 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. I will be overjoyed, be overjoyed because of my God. For he clothes me in garments of deliverance. He puts on me a robe symbolizing vindication. To Job 29, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. Or when the New Testament talks about putting on the new self or putting on Christ, using the image of clothing. These women came to Peter with these clothes because they said something about the woman who made them, but also because they said something about the woman who wore them. Whether or not Tabitha was herself a widow, she served and lived among these widows, women who were in a uniquely vulnerable situation in their context. Without the protection and provision of men, they could end up destitute, abandoned, alone, Not all widows face that fate, but many did, and it's one of the reasons that throughout all of scripture they're described as a special class of people to be defended and protected and cared for. Tabitha honored these women by making them clothes. She was clothed with righteousness by clothing others. It's also interesting that Tabitha is not praised for typical womanly virtues of her time or of our time, for running a good household, for being chaste or graceful or delicate. Her good works are not directed toward her husband or her children, but toward her larger community, her family, her very real family. Obviously, good works towards our immediate nuclear families are good. We should praise those who take care of their parents or parents who take care of their children, siblings who love each other. But in that context, it was the height of womanhood to care for your immediate family and the role of men to care for the larger community. And instead, in Tabitha, we are given an example to emulate of service to her larger community. The world generally knows what families look like. They know what it means for parents to love their children or children to love their parents back. What is really revolutionary is the family of God, a community of people from different backgrounds and biological families who willingly take on the obligation of caring for one another in self-sacrificing ways. Tabitha is also a reminder to us that women have always played a crucial role in serving, growing, and leading the church. Some scholars see in this passage either a forerunner or an actual description of the order of widows, yes, to care for widows, but also a source of authority in the church. It's debated if that's what's happening here, but women have always been crucial to the church, from Mary, the mother of Jesus, to Mary Magdalene, to Priscilla, or Phoebe, or Junia. It's also always been true that their contributions have been devalued, from the very first one. When the women run to tell the apostles about the resurrection, Luke tells us their words seemed like nonsense and they did not believe them. Kat Armis, a writer and a scholar and a podcaster, says in her book, Abuelita Theology, which I would highly recommend, she says this about Tabitha. A woman disciple who was often overlooked in our conversations was of utmost importance in the story of the early church, so much so that her life was worthy of resurrection. That brings us back to the text. I'm going to read verse 40 again. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. This is a wild story. (laughs) I think we forget how many weird things are in Acts. Like, this is a tame Acts story. There is some weird stuff. But make no mistake, even though we kind of attribute this as normal in their context, it was not normal, right? This is like your next-door neighbor, Tabitha, who, like sewing, is raised from the dead one day. (laughs) 
And this story has a lot of parallels with other similar stories in the Bible of resuscitation. A lot of scholars would prefer resuscitation over resurrection because, yes, Tabitha was raised, but she did die again. And she awaits the final resurrection that we all await, our resurrection bodies, to live in eternity in this redeemed creation. But it has some parallels with some of these other stories. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah raises the son of a widow. He carries him up to an upper room, like Tabitha, and it brings faith to his mother, like Tabitha's resuscitation brings faith to her community. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha raises a woman's son, and this son is especially special because he had been prophesied to come as a promise to a woman who was worried about what would happen to her after her husband died. And both of these stories are similar to Jesus raising a widow's son in Luke 7. These are all stories about caring for widows more than raising these men. Stories in which raising the son who would care for these women is crucial to the drama of the story. These women do not have husbands to take care of them or they fear they won't soon. And if their only sons die, they will be completely without support or protection. Who will take care of them? The point is implicit. Jesus is not only raising this man from the dead or Elijah or Elisha. He's providing for these vulnerable widows. In this story, the same dynamic is at play, but in the new family of God, it is not just biological sons of these women who have responsibility for them, who are obligated to care for their needs, who can serve them in intimate and significant ways. In this story, it is a woman who is not related to them by blood. She is still raised like these men for the sake of her family, for the family of God. This story also has parallels with another miracle of Jesus's, the story of raising Jairus's daughter in Luke 8. I'm going to go there really quickly. Starting in verse 40, it says, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. If you know this story, Jesus gets interrupted by the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, which is itself an incredible story of Jesus pausing to heal this woman who doesn't have anyone to advocate for her, like this 12-year-old girl does, an important man. Later on in verse 49, it says, While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. There's a similar pattern of healing here. Jesus makes the mourners leave except for his inner circle and for her parents, just as Peter had the other people leave the room. As we just heard, Peter takes her by the hand as Jesus takes the girl by the hand. But I think the most striking similarity is what they say. In Luke's account, he translates for us what Jesus actually said in Aramaic into Greek for an audience that wouldn't know Aramaic. But Mark, when he tells it with an audience that might understand Aramaic, he tells us what Jesus actually said, the words Jesus spoke, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. You may have noticed that at the beginning of the story, Luke tells us that Tabitha was her Aramaic name, but her Greek name was Dorcas. He's writing to an audience that didn't primarily speak Aramaic, and he, they may have had limited familiarity with other Jewish cultural or religious details. So Luke tells us about Tabitha's Greek name, but then he uses in the story Dorcas. The widows showed the tunics that Dorcas had made them. 
But when we get to the pivotal moment in the story, Luke tells us that what Peter said to her was, Tabitha, get up. In other words, Tabitha kum. Jesus said to a little girl, the child of a prominent man, a leader in the synagogue, Talitha kum. And Peter says to this grown woman, faithful and humble in her service of widows, Tabitha kum. Just one syllable different. From a young girl to an older woman, from the child of someone important in the temple to a woman dearly important to the people of God in her own right, they are both told to arise. They're both dearly valued by God, celebrated in their communities because of the miracle God has done. Peter follows in the ministry of Jesus by seeing this woman's service, knowing her true name, the name closest to her heart, and saying with Jesus, arise. There's another reason I think it's significant that Peter uses her Aramaic name. Our names matter. I know, I have two names with two very different problems. The first, Caitlin, so common and a million spellings. The second, Shess, hard to say, hard to spell, and if you're not careful, you will swear in German when you say it. (laughs) Our names often connect us to our families in ways that we love or hate. Our names are often culturally specific. It's why it's so painful when someone doesn't take the time to learn how to say it. We love when we hear our own name. Our brains literally release dopamine and serotonin, happy chemicals, when we hear a name that is our own, not just our same name. I can hear Caitlin's called out at Starbucks all day long, and it doesn't matter. But if I have a conversation with a friend, and I'm not sure yet that we know each other well enough that they remember my name, but they say it, that feels so good. I've belonged to a church in Durham for about eight months now, since I moved here last year, and I remember just a few months ago walking up to receive ashes on Ash Wednesday, And hearing the pastor say to the woman in front of me, Jill, her name, you are dust, and to dust you will return. I knew he didn't know my name because I hadn't been there very long. I didn't know him very well. And I felt an unexpected pang of sadness that night for the church community I had left in Dallas where I just moved from. It was a church that brought me a lot of joy and also a lot of pain, and yet I still missed that feeling of people knowing my name. It was actually only a week ago that I received communion from that same pastor who I have since gotten to know, And it was the first time last week when he handed me the bread and said, the body of Christ, Caitlin, and it meant the world to me. So Peter says her name, not just a name people call her, but the name she knew in her heart, the name that came from her cultural background, the name she probably grew up hearing her mother yell and her siblings taunt, Tabitha, (laughs) Tabitha, arise. After Peter says these words, the Bible tells us, Tabitha opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. She heard her name, and she saw him. It reminds me of Mary in the garden after the resurrection in the Gospel of John. She doesn't recognize Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener. She says, I do not know where they have taken my Lord. It's not until Jesus says to her simply, Mary, that she recognizes him. We're all waiting for someone to know us, to say our name. We don't regularly experience these kinds of things, people raising from the dead, but Tabitha's story is intended to be imitated, intended to describe an ordinary woman who served her community faithfully and fully. So what are we to make of this wild miracle, one that is not only not common today, but important to remember, not common back then either? I think we'll see that a little more fully in these last verses. I'm going to read 41 through 43 again. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Peter helps her to her feet and then presents her to the disciples, but not just to the whole group of disciples. It says especially to the widows. 
the woman who cared for them and provided for them has been returned to them. Can you imagine that kind of joy? These are women who have all faced a significant loss already in their life. They've now lost this woman who meant so much to them. But Peter, by the power of Christ, has brought her back. I think this passage is a word for us about our relationship with one another, that we are called to follow Jesus in seeing people, calling them by their rightful name, learning how to pronounce the name their mother gave them, yes, but also telling them the truth about themselves. The truth that Peter told to Tabitha, but mostly that Tabitha told to these women that loved her, that they belong somewhere to the family of God, that they are loved and truly known by the creator of the universe, that we need them in our community and they need us to care for them back, that their gifts and talents will be honored and used and that when they are in need, we will care for them. This is also a word for us about what a disciple looks like. Not just a woman disciple, all disciples. Tabitha is a picture of a real disciple because of where she belongs and how she serves. The brilliant scholar Willie James Jennings says in his commentary on Acts, which is a great commentary and very readable, he says, this woman matters and the work she does for widows matters to God. It matters so much that God will not allow death the last word. Tabitha is an activist who lives again in resurrection power. Tabitha lived like the kingdom of God had actually arrived, like Jesus had actually raised from the dead, and that that actually put demands on her life, her time, her resources, her relationships, her sense of belonging and community and loyalty. She was adopted into a new family. She had new family members to care for, and her time and her resources were not her own. So it's no surprise that someone who served like the kingdom of God had actually arrived got a special taste of it, new life. Tabitha was not resuscitated because she had a special skill or came from the right kind of family or knew the right people or built a nonprofit or a church or something big or amazing. She was faithful to the small work God put right in front of her. And then this miracle did what miracles tend to do. It caused people to believe in the Lord. In this case, it was a miracle as we tend to think of miracles, someone raised from the dead. But I think the story has another miracle, and I'm not being cheesy here. I really think this is a miracle. The family of God. The fact that people from different backgrounds and biological families, social status and cultural context, different opinions and desires and fears and dreams become one family because of the work of Christ on the cross and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and believers. And that miracle of family comes to us as gift and as promise, as tender care for our needs and as obligation on our time and our resources. The last verse in this section is a little strange. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. It just sort of seems random, right? I think this detail serves a few purposes. It reminds us of the ordinary people involved in the growing of the church and the spreading of the gospel. It is one way in which Luke loves to tell us about his hosts and their jobs. I love that about him, that he feels like that's an important detail. And it might have even helped the original readers know kind of to fact check Luke or to go back and find the church. But I think it also serves as a pretty fitting summary of this passage. Christ has conquered death. A tanner was someone who definitionally dealt with death, dead flesh. There was the possibility of ceremonial uncleanliness, so some Jews would stay away from tanners, but also most people did because it was just gross. It definitely made his business unpleasant. It probably, not probably, it definitely smelled bad. Peter does not avoid the tanner, fearing ceremonial impurity or even just the grossness. He comes near to him, stays with him. Death has lost its power. 
It still stings while we await Christ's return. I'm sure those hides still smelled. But it doesn't hold power over us. Tabitha and Simon, the tunic maker and the tanner, both display for us in very different ways that the resurrection of Christ changes everything. It affects every area of our lives, our place in society, who our family is, what relationships we have, our jobs and what they mean. The resurrection created the possibility for this new community, this new family of God, and gives everyone a place in it. This is a resurrection way of life. Living in light of the resurrection of Christ will surely look different for all of us. We have different jobs to do. We have different needs in our communities. We have a different web of responsibilities, people who need us. But it must look like this, belonging to this new family and serving the most vulnerable. It's taking care of the children of this family. Um, Chris did not tell me to give an ad for helping with the children, but everywhere I go, I just tell everyone, you should help with the kids. <laughs> it's not saying that they're someone else's responsibility. In the family of God, there's no such thing as other people's children. It's looking for the needs around you and ways that you can meet them. Bringing meals for a new baby or a broken arm or a cancer diagnosis. It's helping people move or offering them a place to stay. It's making choices that best serve the body and not just yourself. Giving an old car away to someone who needs it, maybe a student or someone in need of a new job when you could make money selling it. Inviting people into your home who might break a dish or spill on the carpet learning people's names and using them and listening to their boring stories and saying hi when you know they'll talk for 20 minutes, but doing it because you love them. There are lots of ways the Bible describes the people of God. A nation, a kingdom, a family, a city. The kingdom tells us one thing that we see in this story. Christ has conquered the forces of sin and death and a new reality awaits us. The family tells us another thing we see in this story. That in spite of the ways we are categorized socially now in this fallen creation, we have a secure and significant position in the new family God has made. A family gathered together from the outcasts and the misfits, the powerful and the lowly, the tanners and the tunic makers. This is what the resurrection of Christ meant for Tabitha and means for us. That Jesus sees us, knows our rightful name, and calls us to service in his coming kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much um, for your word. Thank you for inspiring um, people to record these stories of your faithfulness in communities that feel very far from ours but still resonate deeply with us today. Thank you for noticing us, for giving us a place in a new family. God, I, I thank you that especially on a day like today that could be joyful for many of us but also deeply painful for others that... We all have a secure and significant place in your family that is ultimately more true of us than anything else that could be said of us. I pray that you would root that truth in our hearts and our lives and give us opportunities to live like it is true in your world. Amen. <laughs>